There are more than 300,000 cases of Lyme disease in the United States per year, and this is really increasing. And then, of course, there's discussion even by the CDC about how many cases are missed and that they think that there's definitely more cases than those that are reported. I, I love, you know, especially now as spring is coming, we're feeling it, you know, I want to be outside and I want people to be empowered to be outside and really take prevention seriously so that we can enjoy being outdoors, enjoy the beautiful landscape, but also protect ourselves from these tick-borne diseases. I'm Dr. Seth Osgood, the founder of Grassroots Functional Medicine. After personally struggling for years upon years with chronic health issues that traditional medicine and pharmaceuticals could not resolve, I finally found relief in true healing through a functional medicine approach. Since then, I've dedicated my life to helping patients around the world transform their health by getting to the root cause of symptoms and restoring their body's natural ability to heal. This experience has shown me that a true state of wellness often requires an integrated approach that brings in multiple disciplines and modalities. In this podcast, I will interview a variety of practitioners and health professionals to educate and empower you on the full spectrum of tools that are available to reclaim your health and vitality. If you are struggling with health challenges and you are not getting the answers or results you feel you deserve, or you simply want to optimize your health and take a proactive approach to wellness, this podcast is for you. And if you like this show and find it helpful, be sure to tell a friend, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcast. So let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Grassroots Functional Medicine Podcast. Today we have a very special guest and topic. We're joined by Dr. Alexis Chesney, and we are going to be talking all about Lyme disease, from preventing Lyme, to testing for Lyme, to treating acute and chronic Lyme. We're going to hit it all, so definitely stay tuned till the end. It is chock full of information. Alexis Chesney is a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist specializing in Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses. In addition to having her own private practice, she also works with a team of integrative practitioners at Sojourns Community Health Clinic in Westminster, Vermont. Dr. Chesney served on the board of directors and is currently the Naturopathic Medicine Committee Chair for the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. She has been featured as an expert on tick-borne illness at conferences and in the media around the country. Dr. Chesney is also the author of the book, Preventing Lyme and Other Tick-Borne Diseases, which I believe everyone should have a copy of. She is a wealth of knowledge, and I'm excited for you to hear all of the information she has to share. Let's get started. Hi, Alexis. Thank you so much for joining me on the Grassroots Functional Medicine Podcast. I have been looking forward to this conversation for many weeks now, and I'm just so excited to have you on. Hi, Seth. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Well, we've got a lot of potential things to talk about today, with the main focus being on Lyme disease and prevention. But before we jump into all of these, all of the details, I would love to learn a little bit more about your background and really what got you interested in treating Lyme disease. Absolutely. Well, I was back in naturopathic medical school back down in uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, where there is unfortunately a lot of Lyme uh, over 13 years ago. And a friend of mine uh, was getting ill, otherwise healthy person, active woman who, you know, studying together. I just saw that sort of decrease in health and bizarre symptoms coming up. And so she was diagnosed with Lyme and it was just 
you know, it was hard to watch or go through that, but also to learn so much about getting to the right doctor, getting the right test done, getting the right diagnosis and the treatment, how complicated it was. So I ended up moving up to Vermont. I work at Sojourns Community Health Clinic in Westminster. And that first year I moved up to the re residency and I got to uh, train also with Dr. Richard Horowitz, who's in Hyde Park, New York. And he's, he's an incredible expert, very holistic. And so we connected on that, you know, him being very open to and utilizing principles of naturopathic medicine in his own practice. And I just got the biggest download of information from him. He's such a fast talker. I just followed him around and took notes and it was, it was absolutely incredible. So going back to Vermont, I had no idea that I was really on the front lines of the Lyme epidemic in New England. And it just exploded. Unfortunately, there were so many people uh, dealing with Lyme, whether it was long-term and then new tick bites coming up. As, as we see every year, it seems like there are more ticks uh, in Vermont and New Hampshire. So I've been very busy <laughs> since. I bet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And working with Richard Orwich must have been just a blast. I bet you just so learned so much. That, that must have been great. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. He's an amazing person and doctor, and he's still my mentor today. Absolutely. That's awesome. That's a, well, on that note, do you mind giving us a little bit of a, a background about Lyme disease or tick-borne illness, you know, and, and just how big of a problem it is, not only in our area, but, you know, in throughout the world? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, when I moved up here, I had no idea I was on the front line of uh, Lyme. And, you know, Vermont was number one in the nation for incidence of Lyme disease three times since 2010. So it's really the, the it's always uh, number one, two, three, and four, you know, in the, in the country is still New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine. But, you know, there are more than 300,000 cases of Lyme disease in the United States per year. And this is really increasing. And then, of course, there's discussion, even by the CDC, about how many cases are missed and that they think that there's, there's definitely more cases than those that are reported. And, and also, I think it's really important to talk about co-infections. So other tick-borne diseases can be transmitted by these ticks. And, you know, where we are, we have the black-legged tick, or as people call it, the deer tick, that carry pathogens and some of them are co-infected. Lyme disease, which is Borrelia burgdorferi, is the pathogen, the bacterium that then causes Lyme disease in humans, but also anaplasma and Babesia. And we're seeing more and more cases of those. Actually, I think it was just in 2018, it might be off, I don't have my PowerPoint right here, but you know, in 2018, I think that Vermont was number one in anaplasmosis cases. So you know, it's just, it's, it's such a beautiful place. I, I love, you know, especially now as spring is coming, we're feeling it, you know, I want to be outside and I want people to be empowered to be outside and really take prevention seriously so that we can enjoy being outdoors, enjoy the beautiful landscape, but also protect ourselves from these tick-borne diseases. Absolutely. I love that you mentioned, I mean, I, those co-infections, I feel like a lot of times they just get completely overlooked. So people are tested. They're told they don't have Lyme disease, but you know, these co-infections, nobody's even investigating those. So on that note, 
you know, there's a lot of, I feel like, especially in, in our area, it seems like with the patients that we see, there's a lot of controversy in the medical community about Lyme disease, where they'll go to their doctor or they'll go to their specialist for a variety of different symptoms. And they say that they've been tested for Lyme disease and it's negative, but later we find out that they actually do have some Lyme or some other co-infection. Can you talk a little bit about this controversy that people may experience when they are seeing different healthcare professionals around the topic of Lyme? Absolutely. It's, it's honestly, it's been very heartbreaking. I, I've heard so many stories over the last 13 years now. And it's, it's sad, you know, especially when I first was, was practicing here, I had doctors say, oh, you couldn't have had a tick bite. There are no ticks in Vermont, you know, <laughs> which is just not true. I mean, there's just such a range of response that people have gotten. Or you can't have Lyme. There's no Lyme here. And even still, sometimes I hear that. But in general, there are two standards of care. Regarding Lyme disease, of course, there's the IDSA guidelines with CDC guidelines, similarities there. And that's what conventional trained physicians and practitioners experience and, and, you know, refer to when a patient comes in. And I understand that. I follow CDC guidelines on, on other things. But, you know, unfortunately, I see that there's a body of literature that is being ignored. And through my training with Dr. Horowitz, through training uh, through ILADS, International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. You know, I've had my eyes opened and, and just seeing patients <laughs> themselves, and, you know, has, has really opened my eyes and beginning to seeing that there, there is an importance in listening to our patients and, and really making sure that we treat long enough, that we use diagnostics that are more accurate, that we believe our patients when they say that, Hey, they did that three-week course of doxycycline by a, a practitioner out there, but, you know, maybe they got a little better, but, you know, that joint pain's coming back. Well, let's look into that. Maybe it is still active Lyme. And a lot of times it is. I see a lot of patients like that. You know, they've had some improvement, but now it's months later. Symptoms are coming back. And they're just not the way they were before they had Lyme or tick-borne disease. And sometimes it's a missing piece like Babesia. And we need to actually think about that and, and know those symptoms and ask about that and test for it and treat it. Or maybe it's just, you know, a, a longer term Lyme, persistent Lyme. And we need to look at all the ways Lyme exists and hide in the body and make sure to come up with a, a treatment plan for them that covers all those ways which doxycycline doesn't get to. So it's funny, I went to a neurologist uh, last year for a problem that I was having. And, uh, and I actually had Lyme as well. And it was a neuro like a numbness and tingling, just weird stuff. And, and of course, and I love it. We'll talk more about that. Lyme being the great imitator, but I talked to the neurologist and she said, yeah, it's, it, it blows my mind, but we, we just don't see Lyme ever here in Vermont. I don't know what's going on. I mean, that was just last year. A neurologist is saying they don't see Lyme. I was like, oh my goodness, this is, it's just painful. Cause it just makes me think about how many patients are, are getting overlooked, right? They're going in for bizarre things and being diagnosed as idiopathic, this idiopathic, that whether it's small fiber neuropathy or paresthesias or, di you know, different things. And Lyme is just not even being evaluated at all. It's just, it is, it's heartbreaking to see that. Yeah, I see that a lot. Misdiagnoses or, oh, you know, and then sometimes yeah. we can avert surgery or yeah. procedures. And hey, if, if somebody needs a knee replacement or whatever's going on, I want people to get to the cause and get the help they need. But, you know, I have seen people 
actually do well. And, and they were down this track for some kind of surgery or procedure that then they didn't need because actually right. it was Lyme. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, you know, we're going to jump into the details of Lyme and co-infections and testing and treatment. But before we do, we, I would love to, I know one of the, your areas of expertise is prevention. We know that the best treatment for Lyme is not to get it in the first place. So what are some of the specific recommendations that our listeners can implement to prevent tick bites altogether? Yes. So important. I'm so passionate about this and I'm getting started talking about this every day now because it's uh, tick season, but let's, let's talk about that first. What is tick season, right? So actually ticks are active anytime it's above 28 degrees Fahrenheit. So, you know, it's tricky with New England, right? We have really nice days and then it gets cold again and then over the winter. So it's just important, I think, for people to be aware of that. Now, of course, if it's, you know, 30 degrees and there's snow cover out there, they're going to be under the snow cover, so less of a risk. But like down here, our snow's been gone for quite a while now. And if they're in the vegetation and you're walking out there, then when they're active, they, they could come and, and bite you. So I think, you know, not having these set months, you know, depends on who I talk to. Like, oh, yeah, it's what, May to September or June and July. Like, what is tick season? But it, it can be any time. And I do get calls, you know, even through the winter on that. So with all that said, of course, we're, we're thinking about it more now. And that's a good thing. The, the number one recommendation nowadays that I'm making is really thinking about this highly effective method of prevention using permethrin on just your socks and shoes. So honestly, in the beginning, I was skeptical of permethrin or I had some, some questions about that. You know, it's a chemical. It's from the chrysanthemum flower, but it's, it's at the level of actually being toxic to our skin if we put it on our skin when it's wet. So I understand people have concerns about that, but I just keep coming back to seeing when we implement that sort of method of prevention, it makes, it has such a huge impact. So every six weeks, I put it on my calendar. I always tell my patients, put it on your calendar every six weeks, bring out the shoes and sneakers and boots, you know, of all the family, everyone in your family, put them outside, get permethrin. I use Sawyer's permethrin. You can find it at most hardware stores. You can get it online. You can get it like a, a feed store, store like uh, Agway or something like that. Wear some gloves, spray them down, soak them. You want, you want the shoes to be soaked, the material, and then let it dry. And that takes maybe an hour or two. And then when it's dried into the material, it's no longer toxic to us or our pets. So I get that question a lot. Yeah. But it is still toxic or repels ticks. So um, just doing shoes and socks together with permethrin decreases the chances of a tick bite by 73 times. So I think that's definitely a high impact method to, to take. Now socks, honestly, I get mine through Insect Shield, insectshield.com, awesome resource. You can buy their socks, you can buy their clothes with permethrin already impregnated in it. You can actually send your clothes to them so I actually have a few outfits, you know, for gardening or from like really want to get out there in the woods or something. Otherwise, I stay on the trails, <laughs> as you can imagine. But, you know, have a few outfits. That's great as well. And you can actually send your clothes to them because when they 
do this commercially, then it lasts 70 uh, washes. So instead of the six-week mark, you have to redo it over and over again. Then it's for 70 washes. Wow. A long time. So a combination of these things. But if you get some, or you can do your own socks. I just like theirs because then I also know, hey, these are the Permethrin socks, you know? So they look different. They have a specific look. So uh, socks and shoes, definitely recommend. That's awesome. That's a, that's a great tip. And so yeah, we get a lot too about Permethrin, especially around tick tubes, which I know are another uh, mm. method that you recommend. Do you mind? But that's what typically comes up is, is this going to hurt my pets? Is this going to harm my dog? Is this going to harm my cat if they get hold of it? But before we jump, do you mind just telling us a little bit about tick tubes? Is that something you typically recommend for people to implement in their yards as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Again, highly effective. So tick tubes, you can make yourself. In my book, I talk all about how to do that and have instructions on how to do that if you wanted to do that. Or you can buy them. So ticktubes.com. There's also another company out there that does it well and then you can just buy them but if you wanted to do a little project at home you can uh, save your tubes from paper towels or toilet tissue and you can save lint from your dryer and or you can get some cotton balls or some kind of material like that that mice like because we're targeting the mouse population so you bring all that outside and you get your permethrin that you have for spraying your shoes right <laughs> you can do it all in the same day you get your lint or your cotton material and you spray that down with permethrin, wear gloves, be careful, and let that dry. And then you stuff the tubes and then you put the tubes out in mouse habitat, which happens to be tick habitat. So they, they all like the areas that are darker, shaded, moist, these kinds of areas, places like a stone wall or around a shed or in a wood pile. These are places mice like to be. And so you can put them out. There's directions, of course, about how many per acre, because that's important to do enough. And then what happens is the mice come along, they bring that material to their nests, and then the permethrin on the material will kill the ticks on them and their family members. And for better or worse, it doesn't hurt the mice. <laughs> I've had patients say, oh, are you going to get the mice? And they want to get the mice. And then other people don't want to get the mice. So we're, we're, we're just aiming the, the target is the tick. And yeah, and it's, oh, it's also, I like to say, important because regarding the tick life cycle and the transmission of Lyme to us, most of the ticks get Lyme actually from an animal like a mouse. So they'll, they'll hatch out in their larvae at that point, really small, the size of a period at the end of a sentence. They're not really going to get to us unless, unless you're rolling around close to them, which maybe you are instead <laughs> of your kids. But um, usually larvae don't connect to us because they don't have much energy to go far. They're going to get onto someone like a mouse, and that is when they will get Borrelia from the mouse, which causes Lyme. So then their next feeding might happen, you know, with you or, or, you know, a human. And so once they're a nymph, now they're only the size of a poppy seed, still pretty small, but they'll have a little more energy. They'll maybe come up a piece of grass and hook onto you as you walk by. And that nymph, if it has Borrelia, that it 
got from the mouse can transmit Borrelia to you and cause Lyme. So, so it's also like targeting that really important time for the tick life cycle. So I really love tick tubes thinking about that. It really cuts down. Again, there are a lot of studies on it showing how, how well it works to cut down on the population of ticks. And also year to year, you know, I've had patients come in. Oh my goodness, we're getting all these tick bites. We have this beautiful yard or, or acres and acres of property. And they do the tick tube intervention. Next year I see them back, they're getting either none, sometimes really none, or couple, you know, and it's uh, not a big deal. And, and it really uh, makes a big difference. So that's what happened with us. We, when we moved from Texas, we were just infested at our house with ticks and we tried everything. I mean, we, we got chickens, we kept the lawn, the lawn clean. We even had them come and spray with, you know, the natural oils to kill the ticks and it it helped. It really was better than before, but man, when we put those tick tubes out, it was just phenomenal how, how well they worked. I mean, we weren't seeing ticks hardly at all. Whereas literally we're picking ticks off our kids almost nightly or at least a couple times a week. So I'm a huge fan of those things. I think they're great. Nice. Awesome. So, you know, in regards to people who are in tick endemic areas, or if they do have a lot of exposure, do you mind talking a little bit about prophylactic treatment? Is that something that you implement and and what would that look like if you did? Sure. Yeah. So there are a lot of Options. So one thing that I often talk to patients about, if if they're really out there like farmers and loggers, or even people that just love being outside riding horses or whatnot, you know, that have higher risk of tick bites, they could choose to do some herbal prophylaxis during during tick season. And so what I created was, you know, for, for this area, we're thinking about the black-legged deer ticks. So I created deer tick bite formula, which has herbs that uh, address all of the pathogens that can be carried by a deer tick. So the idea is to take that prophylaxis during tick season and that you've already got it in your body. If you happen to get a tick bite and whether or not you had that tick bite, you'd already have some of that formula helping your immune system work because these herbs, you know, work in different ways not just killing off these pathogens, but helping your immune system to, to modulate in a way that gets it back on track. Because when we actually get exposed to Borrelia, Borrelia will sort of hijack part of our immune system. And so if we have these herbs on board before that can happen, that's going to really help us succeed against the pathogens. So yeah, so, so that's, a, that's a, an option. Some of my higher risk patients choose to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then you don't have all the risks of, you know, antibiotics or the things that can go along with that for long-term use. Yes. That's yeah. awesome. Great. And, and so let's talk about the, the moment where everybody, what everybody fears is actually getting bit by a tick. You know, what, what should people do to ensure the best outcome if they actually do get bit by a tick? Right. So I would say saving the tick is very helpful. You can send it out to get tested. And then you find out, number one, is this tick carrying any other pathogens? Maybe it's not. And what a relief that is when that happens, right? And if it is carrying pathogens, which ones? You know, as time goes on, they have some patients bring in some interesting reports. I use tick report and highly recommend them. They are in Massachusetts. 
it's a pretty good turnaround time. So you fill out a form online, you send it in the mail, and when you get it back, you, you know, via email, your results pretty quickly, three to five days usually. So it's really nice to find out. Unfortunately, there are a lot of these co-infected ticks. I just had somebody with just anaplasma babesia, usually Lyme's in there, but this oh. one just had, it had both, so anaplasma babesia. So we can take a specific action according to those results. Now, people always ask, okay, those three to five days, should I wait or should I do something? <laughs> so if somebody's asymptomatic, I think it's totally up to you. I'm, <laughs> I'm soaked in this world, so I'm probably going to jump on the deer tick bite formula as soon as that were to happen, if it happened. But I think waiting the three to five days is fine if you're asymptomatic. And then you get the tick report back, and then you get to make an informed choice. Some people then want to take something like the deer tick bite formula, or we could actually get even more specific. Hey, that tick didn't have Lyme. We don't need the, the, the anti-Lyme herbs. Let's just really focus on anaplasma and babesia for, for that person. Or some people, you know, they, they, they're weighing the cost, they're weighing other factors, and they might just decide to watch and wait. And of course, that's totally a personal choice and okay to do. And so I'll review the symptoms. You know, if we know what that tick is carrying, we can get more specific about that, what symptoms to watch out for. And as soon as symptoms appear, if they do, then we're really moving into a different category. We're now in active disease, right? So we go from an asymptomatic picture to a symptomatic picture. And now we're thinking, well, which disease is present? You know, is it the anaplasma or babesia or, or, or both? And then we can get into that later if you yeah. want, but <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the, the tick testing is actually very valuable and, and also I use homeopathic. So like in the moment, if somebody wanted to do something at home before they were to get the tick back, the tick report back, you could take Lidum. So Lidum 30C helps the body work. In, in a different way, you know, thinking about homeopathics versus herbs, but that can at least treat the bite itself and also prepare the immune system if any pathogens were transmitted. So homeopathics uh, in this way by themselves are not going to replace treatment for a disease state, but it's going to be helpful in that early, early stage after a bite. So, so you could certainly get that started on your own. You could certainly, at the moment, who's thinking about saving the tick? If it, if it was exactly. Bad. You can just start on your tick bite formula and take that for 30 days if you're asymptomatic. And also treating, I like to talk about treating the, the site. So um, using andrographis, the bite itself is great. It's uh, antibacterial, uh, antiviral, and... Also, it just, it seems like people heal a little quicker. It's interesting yeah. the feedback I get from patients, like it's less itchy. Some people have itchy tick bites, some people do not, but I get back feedback about seem to heal better. I mean, it's just anecdotal, but. Yeah, no, I, I've seen that too. It's, it, it's good stuff. And, you know, and I'll make sure we put that into the, the tickreport.com in the show notes too, because that's a great resource to people. A lot of people just don't even know about that, that that's available. And it blows my mind how quick they really do give you the results pretty fast, which is, which is impressive. 
And, and it's just hard. I think that's what we see is people, they, they just want to get that tick off them as fast as possible. And then, you know, they, they don't even know where it went or what happened to it. So it is easy to just to get into that moment, but really resist that and, and save it is, is really helpful. And when we're trying to figure things out, do you, do you mind talking a little bit about proper removal? Like how do, do you actually remove a tip tick? Cause I know there's a lot of misconceptions on that and, uh, you know, some, some ideas out there that aren't necessarily the, uh, the best way to do things. Right. Right. Yeah. So for removal, what I love is the Otom tick twister. It's actually from France. They're my favorite. When I first started doing this, I was using tweezers. Tweezers are just, yeah. it's a menace, you know? I don't know. Some people might be able to master it, but I, I have not. And I hear, hear that a lot from patients. So, so the tick twister is so great. It just, it goes right under the tick and you just twist and lift. And usually I get it in the first try, if not, maybe the second try. It's great for, you know, pets as well as people. And they come off pretty easily. And then you have the mouth parts removed with, you know, full, the full tick is removed. Yeah. So that's great. It, it's really good not to agitate the tick. So, so because that tick twister is just pretty, you know, fluid and easy, I think usually the tick isn't too disturbed, opposed to using tweezers usually. Because if it is, then it might actually cause it to regurgitate more saliva with the pathogen, if there are pathogens in the tick, you know, back into the person. So things like burning the tick while it's on you, Vaseline, hoping it'll back out, all these different things I don't recommend. Yeah. So I highly recommend that tick twister. Awesome. That's great. And you can you, you can find those. On just online, right? I mean, people. You can, yeah, yeah. Well, they're in my. Um, Do they come in your kit? In this kit, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. I, <laughs> cool, cool. Well, I was going to ask too. So, oh, you know, another thing that's out there, you know, is the time for transmission. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Like, when if someone does have a tick on them, or if it's not fully engorged, I mean, what, and or they can figure out exactly when they got bit. I mean, what, when do they, what do they need to worry about from a time standpoint? Does the, the time deal matter? I mean, does the 24 hours or the 48 hours matter? People are hearing a lot of different things from different providers on that. Yeah, I know. It's very confusing. I hear all sorts of things that patients are told. So basically looking at the literature, for instance, there's one study showing that there's a range that shows between six and 72 hours is when a tick can transmit pathogens. And, you know, there, it's sort of a bell curve. So somewhere 24, 48 hours is more likely. However, you know, a lot of times that's what people say, 24 hours, 48 hours, 36 hours, but it can happen sooner than that. So I think it's really important to know that you're not just in the clear if you've made it before 24 hours or something like that. And there's a study showing that if the tick uh, is, has already fed on another host, so if you're the second host, if it got interrupted and aren't only partially fed on the first host, it's sort of primed. So the um, transmission is going to happen a lot sooner, often within the 24 hours, so opposed to within the 72. So, and that's 10% of ticks out there that are biting. So you know, it's only 10%, but hey, it's still between that bell curve and the 10%. I, right. I think it's really important 
to to not get hooked on the time yeah and to really just think about all tick bites as as possibly problematic and so that's that's lime right or borrelia right. but powassan can transmit this is a virus powassan virus which is which is still somewhat rare in the area but actually there you may have seen these reports out in pennsylvania i forget it was something like 80 percent or 90 percent of ticks in one area were found to have powassan which usually it's like one to three percent say in vermont so that was that was disturbing i wonder like why that is but anyhow that transmission happens very quickly so less of a risk at least in this area right now for powassan but it's highly virulent and, and not a not at all a pleasant disease to get. There's no conventional treatment for it. So yeah, there are a lot of factors to think about. All the tick-borne diseases that the tick might be carrying and these different profiles of transmission time. It's like everybody gets, I feel like sometimes in medicine, people get caught up in absolutes. Like they're like, if it hasn't been on there for 48 hours, you are fine, you know, or if that's not on for 24. It's like, where does that, those numbers, it just doesn't even make sense when we really think about it. Like there's going to be variation there. Obviously the longer it's on, the more, you know, the risk, but still like to come up with this arbitrary number and say, this is the absolute, just, it doesn't, it blows my mind. Well, to, you, you mentioned that talking about people getting bit by a tick and then eventually potentially developing symptoms, or that's what they're, they're watching out for after a tick bite. Do you mind talking a little bit about in the acute phase of Lyme disease, what some of those symptoms might look like that should, you know, really be a red flag for people to know that Lyme might be what's going on? Right. Of course. Well, everyone hears about the rash, right? So the bullseye or the Lyme rash happens less than 50% of the time. So of course, look out for it. Please do, especially you know, thinking about if it's on your back or behind your knee, have people check, help you check or look in the mirror up to 30 days after the bite. That is a hallmark diagnostic of Lyme. So it is important if it happens, but if it doesn't happen, it doesn't, doesn't mean you don't have Lyme. So, you know, the most common symptoms will happen within the first 30 days after the tick bites, usually three to 30 days after the bite. So you're looking out during that period. For things like fever, flu-like symptoms, so chills, sweats, body aches, new joint or muscle pain and swelling of joints, it could be just one joint, headaches, also in that time frame could be a Bell's palsy, which is the drooping of, usually, you know, it's in the face, so it's one, usually it's one side, it could be both sides, but a nerve is affected, so that's the neurological piece of the disease that can happen earlier on that causes this drooping. So you'll, you'll, I mean, it's, if you get it, you'll know. So (laughs) most of those people go right to the ER. That can happen within the first 30 days. I do want to plug acupuncture for that. I've seen many people do very well, especially getting acupuncture early on, in addition to the other proper treatments, but adding acupuncture. Yeah. So I think that, you know, that's, the fatigue, you know, fatigue and brain fog that can go with any of these, but those are the hallmark symptoms of, of Lyme and um, not everybody gets all of them, but um, especially thinking about a tick bite again, if you put it on your calendar, all right, 30 days after this, I'm looking for these symptoms because we forget, right? A week, two, three weeks go by and uh, it's good to know. 
Right. And at that point, when you know that Lyme is there, I mean, how does the treatment change? I've, you know, I know that with different co-infections, the treatment might be a little bit different, but just for Borrelia specifically, what do you typically recommend in the acute stages? And are there different options for people? Yes. I mean, there are many options, which is great. Of course, we need to think about interactions and time of year with uh, doxycycline and the sun sensitivity that could come with it, allergies, all of those things, pregnancy, et cetera. But just kind of a basic, typical treatment that I would do is either doxycycline or cefiroxime twice a day for 30. And then we would check in and we'd continue. We'll talk about that. And then also thinking about the ways that Lyme exists in Hyde is really important. So that antibiotic just gets to uh, one way that Lyme exists, that spirochete, a little spiral type classification of bacteria that it is, but it doesn't get to the round form. So the rounder cyst form is when that spirochete balls up into that form and then is dormant. The doxycycline can come and go and then they come back. And that's what can cause that persistent Lyme. So we want to make sure to add something for that. So I'll use something like Lyme Formula One, which I created which, with my herbalist, Bonnie which has andrographis, cat's claw, Chinese cat's claw. And, and so you can take that or sometimes I use grapefruit seed extract. So there are options, right? Awesome. And then the last thing would be serapeptase usually is what I use for biofilm. So that's another way that the lime hides. They create these, these films around themselves, which is like a shell. And so a bunch of spirochetes are in community there. Very smart, <laughs> surviving, hanging out. Doxycycline comes and goes and they're still there. So we want to break through those biofilms and get to them with the other items. And then, of course, probiotics, two hours away from the antibiotics. So I'll start people on a, a month protocol and then check in with them, see how they're doing. Usually people do really well in acute situations with, with Lyme. And then we will change up the strategy. Often at that point, I might move on to an herbal natural therapy, drop the antibiotics. At that point, and I always want to treat two months past the resolution of symptoms to get to that reproductive cycle of Lyme. So for an acute treatment, it might be like two months in a week or something like that, depending on how quickly they respond and resolve their symptoms, which often, if we get to it quickly, people do very well and they stay well. So Awesome. So it's a little different than the 14-day, the 21-day deal that they may receive from their, their traditional doctor. And that's so important for people. I, I just love the way you explain that because it's, it's so important for people to understand this is not just a one and done deal. There's multiple things to think about. Like you're saying the different, the, the life cycle, different forms that the, the spirochete can take, the biofilms, the gut health. It's that you really want to work with someone who's going to take that approach and think outside of the box and, you know, set you up for success. Cause so many, we, I, I know you see it as well. It's like they say, oh, I had Lyme disease, but I know that's not it because the doctor treated me for two weeks and I said, oh, I was good to go. And then lo and behold, that was just uh, not enough for them. Right. Yeah. It's so common. Now tell me about, I would love to talk about testing a little bit. Cause I think there is a lot of uh, misconceptions out there uh, about testing where people are relying on the wrong tests and, and thinking that the, the results are definitive. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the, the current strategies for testing where the weak spots are and what you typically recommend in your practice? 
Sure. Great question. Yeah, I go through this with all my patients. It is confusing <laughs> to navigate. So studies show that the typical Lyme test that's given to a patient, the ELISA, which is an antibodies test, is less than 50% accurate. Some reports show 20%. So, so pretty, pretty poor, right? So, so that would mean that it can be used to rule in Lyme, but it doesn't rule it out. So if you have a negative ELISA test, it doesn't mean, oh, we're done. Oh, you don't have Lyme. You're all set. So unfortunately, that's what people hear, though. And for the longest time, it actually, and I think in some hospitals or Quest, the, the, the printout of the, the test results actually said that that test is only used for surveillance. It's not supposed to be used as a diagnostic. And that's the CDC's stance on that. So, so actually it's not, nobody's saying it's supposed to be used as a diagnostic, that ELISA test, but ultimately it often is. So that's the first uh, level of testing, right? That can be done. I don't do that one. I skip, skip <laughs> over that. Let's just go to the Western blot. The Western blot is better and you can get that done while some hospitals in the area refuse to do it, which is disturbing, but you could get it done on Quest. So say at, at Sojourns, we have Quest Diagnostics Lab. So you could, you could do the Western blot and then it, it's not perfect. It's about 60 to 70% sensitive. And so, you know, it's better. It's not amazing. <laughs> Again, it's not going to rule it out, but it could rule it in. And the, the nice thing is if somebody has insurance, it's usually covered by insurance. So we might do that. And then if it comes back negative and we still think the person might have Lyme, then we might talk about these other options or we can go straight to these other more accurate options. So the next level of testing would be through Igenex, a private lab. Uh, I've been using them for years and, and find it very, very useful. So there, they have a Western blot that they do and we could, but we don't have to get into all the why it's more accurate, <laughs> but there are reasons. Right. Um, so it's more accurate than the regular Western blot. It's, but just a little bit, it's 70 to 80% sensitive. So a step up and it's 250 out of pocket right now. So, you know, it's a decision for the patient to make. Right. It is covered by Medicare. Yeah. Really nice. So it's the only yeah. insurance awesome. that covers it. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next step after that, the best test we have at this point, uh, in my training and opinion, is uh, the Igenex immunoblot, which is 90% sensitive. And that one's 450 out of pocket, or if you have Medicare, the federal Medicare, not the other types, it's confusing yeah. nowadays, it's covered, which is nice. So yeah, so I'll often, I lay that out for patients. We make these decisions together, and sometimes it is a financial decision. And of course, ultimately, I don't treat labs. I, I work with people to treat what's going on. And at the end of the day, we might do a, a clinical trial of treatment, right? Absolutely. If it's, you know, if there's enough there in the history to say, looks like Lyme then we might just do some treatment and see how they do. <laughs> yeah, because that's the thing. Lyme is not a diagnosis based on a lab test. We're using that lab test to help us formulate the right diagnosis. But realistically, it's based on clinical symptoms. And I think I do the same thing. I think that's, and the other thing I love, that's exactly what we use is the immunoblot when we can. You know, but another thing that people need to, I think, understand is I see these people go to these, their practitioners and they're spending like $2,500 on an Igenix panel uh, doing these. You don't have to do the whole thing, right? Uh, you can really do just one or two labs and get some really concrete information based on, you know, but yeah, I've, I've seen that over and over again. Like people are coming with these Igenix labs and they're, it's like, 
1800 I'm like, holy wow. cow. Yeah. That's it's crazy. But it's such a good test. And I'm, I'm a big fan. And with my live test specifically, Quest was negative. I mean, I had one band, band 41. And then, you know, iGenics came back CDC positive. So it happened wow. that multiple times with patients too. But sometimes, you know, that's your thing. Quest does come back positive on some people and it's a, it's a great place to start. And there's just so many options. And that's why, again, you gotta, you gotta find someone who can, who can navigate this so you figure out what's going to be the best, best option, you know, to not only get you the right information, but to, so you don't go broke doing it as well. Well, let's talk a little bit about a more controversial topic, which is what happens after acute Lyme, if people are still having symptoms is, is chronic Lyme or persistent Lyme or whatever you want to call it. Is that, is that a real thing? Because a lot of people don't think it is. I know I had no idea 13 years ago that this was such a controversial issue in medicine. Yeah. In this area too. It's like, what is going on? <laughs> so yeah, I definitely see that. Sometimes people come in and they have that history of having Lyme and, and I'm always looking at, I'm getting, trying to get as clear as possible with people regarding target symptoms, because sometimes there are other things going on, of course, right? So is that joint pain from an old injury? Is it actually, well, the old injury plus Lyme loves places of scar tissue and it's there as well. But trying to really decipher what's Lyme and what's not for that person or Babesia or whatever else. But yeah, a lot of times with, the, with those who come to see me, there is a piece of it that's Lyme and it's important to, to really get to it. And I use the same strategy, but just longer treatments. It all depends on how long somebody's had Lyme for. And sometimes we don't necessarily know, but that can kind of tell us, you know, how long they've been sick, how severely ill they are. These are going to be longer treatments. I'm always switching up the treatment over time because I see that that's really effective strategy. And I use a lot of verbal medicine and then also supporting the whole person. I mean, it, it's, you know, a comprehensive strategy that's really individualized and getting them to, you know, figure out, hey, what's going on with your joints? Maybe there's something else going on or your heart or vision. Getting the specialists involved where we need to so we can really help the person heal. Yeah, that was great. So what are some of the, the symptoms that people may experience with more of a chronic issue with Lyme as opposed to, you know, the acute? And mm -hmm. are, what are some, some diagnoses that you often will see in your clinic that people receive when in fact Lyme disease is the culprit? So yeah, so then as, as time goes on and if there's an untreated or not fully treated Lyme going on, we'll see the hallmark intermittent migratory pains, right? You know, it'll be an elbow pain today and later on it'll move to the other elbow or, or a knee or a shoulder and it just kind of moves around. It doesn't always have to be that way, but that, that's a really big red flag uh, if you see that. And then also tingling and numbness that moves around, which, you know, there's, there are not many uh, diagnoses in medicine that, that do that, right? Opposed to, oh, I have numbness in this one specific place because of whatever's going on. Right. And then muscle pain as well, coming and going, moving around. So those are the kind of like the, the three top symptoms that I see uh, with Lyme. With Babesia, you know, because we got to talk about it, you know, those top symptoms would be night sweats, you know, night sweats in men. What's going on, right? 
right? So it's uh, women who are not menopausal, or then it's tricky. Sometimes they are, and we have to kind of figure out what's what, you know? Also palpitations, chest pain, air hunger. Those are the typical Babesia symptoms that I see. And a plasma, I, I do actually see, is really well-treated. It's actually easily diagnosed and treated. It's amazing. I haven't come across, and people, we don't really hear, I don't hear my mentors or colleagues talking about like a chronic anaplasmosis. And I think that's true. But Lyme and Babesia regarding, say, the deer ticks are the big ones that can become chronic. Also Powassan. If, you know, I have one case of Powassan, and uh, we're doing a lot herbally to support her. And, uh, you know, she's much better than she was, but still a little bit of symptoms months and months later. So, hmm. you know, I think that's a really special particular yeah. disease. Yeah. So, so you could continue to have symptoms and then always thinking about how to, to treat, you know, all of the ways Lyme shows up. Babesia is a parasite. It's different. It affects your red blood cells and then reproduces there. We need to think about those strategies. I'm getting the full picture of what's going on. People have come to me that we're going through certain workups. Like sometimes they come to me in the beginning or middle or after they've seen 20 specialists and they've ruled out everything. And typically it might be autoimmune diseases like RA that are ruled out or MS or all sorts of things. <laughs> so, yeah. And it's important to think about it. rule other things out, of course, to get a clearer and clearer picture. But Sometimes a lot of time has gone by where we could have been treating them earlier, you know, would be the ideal. Yeah, absolutely. And like sometimes these, these ticks or these diseases can trigger other problems like autoimmunity, you know, so you can have, like I said, both going on at the same time. And I love what you said about the importance of taking that, that whole body approach and not getting tunnel vision. Cause I'm sure you've seen it as well, where people come in, they've been treated for years for Lyme disease and they've been on antibiotics after antibiotics. And then nobody's looked at the mold situation or nobody's really worked on their gut or their nutrition or those foundational elements. They're not sleeping. It's so important to, to look outside of that box and and hit it from all angles because those are the people who really just seem to excel. Absolutely. I know you brought up mold. I mean, it's such a issue for Lyme. And it's really, you know, people who aren't getting better, you know, I see that as so common. That's the other thing, you know, maybe we start treatment and wow, you know, there's some improvement. Okay. We, you know, we weren't treated long enough or comprehensively enough for Lyme. Maybe we found Babesia. All right, let's get that. But, oh, there's still something. What, what is that? There's something else going on. A lot of times, you know, if people plateau, especially earlier on, there is a multi-component. And I've learned a lot about Absolutely. that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and I know that's a, that's a whole other topic on itself. I'd love to have you back on just to talk about that because I think I, I'm a big fan of of just really investigating that because I think it, it's a huge problem and it gets overlooked. and and uh, And again, it's something that, you, you want to work with the right person on because I, I've seen that where people go in and, you know, they, they're working with somebody who pretty much makes them move out of their house and sell all their equipment. And then they're left homeless on the street just because of the fear of mold. Like there's a right and a wrong way to do that as well, but it, it, it can absolutely be devastating for people. And I think it's just important to remember, like whether it's chronic mold or Lyme or autoimmunity or what, you know, the immune system is what's, what's causing the problem. There's so many different things that can affect that. And as we take, pull away those layers, it's, it's just, a, that's, that's where you see the magic happen. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Well, I don't want to forget about talking about your uh, tick preparedness kit, because uh, I think that's just such an awesome thing that you're doing. You get so many good resources. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about what a tick preparedness kit is and why it's helpful. And then also, if you don't mind talking a little bit about your book, which is just an awesome resource for people to learn more about Lyme disease as a whole, prevention and treatment and just helping you know them to be safe. Yeah, so I've got a tick kit here. <laughs> I've worked with LimeCore.com or LimeCore Botanicals is the company to make these. So they have them on their website. I'll tell you what's in there. There's a deer tick bite formula. We've talked about that. There's some andrographis right there for the tick bite. And then this is that tick twister slid in there. And then also in the back is the homeopathics. So it has the leadum that we spoke about and also apis. So if you had uh, a bullseye rash or, or it doesn't always have to be a bullseye, it could just be a solid reddish, pinkish, could be even bluish, <laughs> unusual rash that's more than two inches in diameter. That's a lime rash. So if you had that, you could also take apis. Again, not to replace proper treatment, but early on, you know, start, start our, off the immune intervention. It has all of those items and then also little, little directions in there that talk about, you know, dosing and why you would take these things after a tick bite. You can find it on my website or go to LimeCore. I had no idea that you were involved with LimeCore. We use their stuff all the time. That's awesome. Oh, okay. Nice. Nice. <laughs> That's great. You've done some good work there. Their products are, they just, the, the combinations seem to work really well on many levels. So. Thank you for, for putting all that time and effort into that. Well, well I talked you, about it in the book and I always talked about it. And then I said, we've got to actually make these things. Absolutely. It's a great uh, investment yeah. for sure. And I, I just, I love the concept of the, of the kits. To know that you're prepared for it when it comes, because you're probably going to get bit by, bit by a tick at some point. So that, yeah, that's good to have it on, on hand. And then, oh, on the topic of LimeCore, I don't know if you know about the uh, Lime Bites Symposium coming up. No, I didn't know May. about that. Yeah, Pegan Sun in Connecticut. <laughs> so what is that? Is that designed for practitioners or is that for, you know? Both practitioners and lay people. Yeah, awesome. yeah. Cool. So I'm going to be speaking and a bunch of other folks. So um, that's going to be a fun, fun time. Great. Well, tell me about your book a little bit. I know that's such a great resource for people. Sure, absolutely. I have that. I happen to have that right here as well. Preventing Lyme and other tick-borne diseases. So you can get this through Story Publishing, which they were a joy to work with. It was quite a process. It was beautiful. So you can get the book anywhere. You buy books. It's also on Amazon. You can go to my website and I can send you a signed copy if you so desire. Since the last two years, it came out in 2020 and I had all these events scheduled in person. And so anyway, I just wanted to make it possible to do some book signing. So that is an option. You can go to dralexischesney.com to get uh, a signed copy. So the book goes through all the ticks that can carry pathogens in the United States. Well, in North America, actually. Because Canada, unfortunately, is, is getting hit now more and more. And then we review how to identify ticks. That's a topic I'm passionate about as well, because here we talk a lot about the black-legged ticks, but depends on the, the part of the continent you're on. Uh, you know, there are other ticks as well, and they all have different profiles of what pathogens they could carry. So then we go through all of the 
tick-borne diseases, and then prevention, right? So talking about things like permethrin, which we talked about before. And then we go through the herbs that are in the deer tick bite formula. And I also have other, like I basically created a, a formula per tick, right? And, nice. and a different profile of herbs per formula. So we talk about that and dosing, and options for children and children's dosing, and, and then treatment for acute tick-borne diseases just to get started on that, recognizing that shifting from prevention into treatment. And then there's some great resources. There's a little tick card that you can punch out and bring with you. So that's in the back. My illustrator was so great. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and then those are some, some different lime rashes. So also in color so that you can see different lime rashes. I think, I think, you know, as with anything, you have to be your own advocate these days. And and with as prevalent as Lyme is, you, you want to be on your game because the sooner, you know, you can, you take action, the, the better off you're going to be. And well, I would love, this has been just absolutely awesome. So if our listeners want to get in touch with you or learn more about you and your practice, what are the best ways to do that? What are the best ways to contact you or to, to work with you? The best way is to go to my website. I have a private practice and I also uh, work at Sojourns Community Health Clinic in Southern Vermont. So depending on what you're looking for, you, you can find the, those contact information and, and phone numbers there. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And I always love to end with a, a good practical health tip that everybody can implement to, you know, either optimize their health or, or improve their state of wellness. Do you have a good practical tip that you can share? I was thinking about <laughs> the permethrin treated shoes right now. That's my tip for sure. Yeah. Just to take a, great a one. step closer to, you know, ending Lyme and tick-borne disease through prevention. Yeah. Join me in that. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a great one. And like you said, it's, it, it's not, you know, we always get that too, where people are so worried about the toxicity because it is a chemical, but like you said, when it's, when it's dry, it's not a problem. You obviously want to handle it when you're making these things appropriately, but it really, it doesn't seem to be a, a big issue. And it's always weighing the risk with the benefit, right? And when you've seen people struggle with Lyme disease, it can be pretty, pretty gnarly. So I want to do everything in your power to, to prevent that from happening. But I just am so grateful that you uh, joined me today and shared your knowledge. It's just been absolutely awesome. And I, I just appreciate it. And I hope to have you back on again. Maybe we can pick another date and talk about mold because I think that is another, another area that people just aren't aware of that really leave, leave them struggling in, in, in many ways. Absolutely. Yeah. This has been great. It's been great chatting with you and spreading the word. I, I hope that we can make an impact and decrease those tick bites out there. <laughs> Absolutely. I <laughs> think much for doing this. Oh, you're so welcome. Well, again, we'll talk soon. I appreciate it. All right. Sounds good. Take care.